get started and all the best. Thanks. Thanks, James. You're recording this, Jan? This is on record. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, great to be uh, at the tavern and here at UWA. I didn't go to UWA, I went to Curtin, but my twin, my twin brother, I have an identical twin brother. Um, if you want to, people say, how can you tell what your non-Christian version of you would look like? I go, I have a twin brother. His life looks pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I have a twin brother who's not a Christian, he's an atheist. And we have some interesting conversations. He lives in Sydney. Uh, in cent- near the CBD, so I'm over there a lot, so we've had some interesting conversations, especially about this topic, which we're going to look at. So I want to show you <clears throat> this. This, though, was a gravy, a gravy mix that we used to have in the UK, and I think it was here for a while, too. And their ad was always the same. It was just these, these two particular knaves going, smelling it and going, ah, Bisto. Savour of Bisto was enough to invoke all these sort of things in them. Uh, home, food, comfort, things like that. I think the word freedom is like Bisto. When we think of the word freedom, we sort of savour it. You only have to say the word freedom and you sort of get the flavour of the smell of what freedom is. It's something that we, it's intangible in some senses, but we all know we want it. Freedom is a good thing. And the thing about freedom is that it's become a word that's almost like a slogan. It's a, ah, freedom. You know what I mean? Freedom. Just the word itself. It becomes a hold-all word. And I want you to conjure in your mind what you think of how freedom operates in your thinking. What is freedom? What is freedom at a university? What's freedom for a young person? What's freedom for you? And then think about what ads do when they pitch freedom. Because isn't that one of the key things that ads do? They pitch freedom to you in order to sell a product. They pitch the, ah, freedom, savour in your nose to get you to buy this car or those clothes. The corona ad from where you'd rather be. And it's never work. It's never work. It's a picture of a combi van, stylistically 1970s retro van, with all these young people overlooking the coast somewhere in Queensland with a beer. That's freedom. It's got a savour to it, the idea of freedom. Obviously there's greater issues with freedom in our culture than beer ads. Look at Hong Kong at the moment. The issues around freedom there. Think about a domestic violence victim who eventually frees herself from her tormentor. My wife is a clinical psychologist and sees enough people who've had domestic violence to know that when they get freedom, it's, it's true liberty. It's something that really matters. We celebrate freedom and we fear losing it. And the biggest crime in our culture at the moment seems to be to restrict the freedom of someone else, whether that's a political freedom, a social freedom, or a sexual freedom. Freedom is the flip side of slavery. Anything that binds you or constrains you from doing what you want is not only seen as unfortunate, but is particularly seen as something wrong. You can't do that to freedom. And it's occupied the greatest minds and the greatest philosophers and writers, and Walt Disney as well. You think of every Disney movie, the idea of freedom is built into those movies, that you should be true to who... Someone else is? No, to who you are. And Rousseau says that man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. The idea of freedom embeds in our lives. And Rousseau's saying that because it resonates with our Western understanding of the world, that if I could just throw off the constraints around me, my true freedom would be, would be found. And in our culture at the moment, the biggest threat to our freedoms, we think, are probably our institutions. And for Rousseau, that was the government of the, of the day. For us today, perhaps, it's something else. Uh, certainly the church, for many people, would view freedom as being antithetical to what the church is on about, particularly in the area of sexuality. And Dale Keane, 
uh, wrote a book called Sex and the Eye World, and he was asked in, 19, in the 80s by a, a colleague at a university he was working at, what's the single biggest issue that's going to arrive for Americans in the next 20 to 30 years? What will be one thing that you can't touch that Americans value that will get you, if you're a politician, knocked out of office? And he said, money. And the guy said, sorry, you're wrong. Sexual freedom is the number one issue to Americans. Any politician who seeks to restrict sexual freedom will die a very painful political death. Who was right? Was he right? Money? Or was his friend right? Sexual freedom. Why sex and not money? I don't want you to steal my money, sounds like a good idea, but money is an external thing. Here's the thing about sexuality. It's a massive issue to do with freedom because sexual identity is now seen as the locus of who we are. Our ultimate freedom is how we express ourselves on a gender or sexuality. And to restrict that is a full restriction of freedom. That's the convention of our age. And here's the problem with biblical Christianity. It bumps up against that. That's one of the reasons over the last few years biblical Christianity has come under a bit of a hammering, really. It's being the public whipping boy for issues of freedom, particularly around sexuality. And I would not have seen that coming maybe 20 years ago, but it's really coming in the last couple of years. Not because of sex itself per se, but because of freedom in general. Christianity can't be true, is how it goes, because it's not livable at the deepest levels of human freedom. And the deepest level of human freedom in our culture at the moment is how I express my identity, particularly through my sexuality. Now, the great irony, of course, is that the Bible says a lot about freedom. The very story that is the core of the Bible story is what? The exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They have been set free from something and they've been set free to something. The exodus story escaping from Egypt is the narrative of the Bible and everything else that comes attaches to it uses that story to explain itself. It's a great irony that the Bible is seen as something that is bondage to people when in fact its whole story is about freedom. How did the Bible story, how did Christianity get tarred with this restriction brush? And we're going to, I'll let you explain, you know, if you want to talk about that in questions, we've got more time in questions to do that. But basically, the Bible's a freedom story, and the key word is the word story, as opposed to the word slogan. You see, ah, freedom is a slogan, isn't it? It doesn't have anything attached to freedom that gives it meaning, other than the meaning that you want to put to it. It's kind of a slogan or a funnel down which you can pour any meaning. But the Bible story about freedom is coming from somewhere and going to somewhere. It challenges our stories and builds another story. The Bible story of freedom isn't just about the word as a slogan. It's about a story and a narrative that does some things to freedom. It opens up freedom here, but it restricts freedom in other places. And what I want to do tonight is to show you an understanding of freedom beyond slogan. Freedom that's a story. So we're going to look at a freedom framework. The, the from of freedom, we're freed from something. The for of freedom in our culture, we're freed from something, for something. And then I'm going to finish it with the, the future of freedom. From, for, and future. Let me show you another photo. There are lots of South African freedom stories. South Africa is a great place to talk about freedom. Steve Biko was um, an anti-apartheid activist, and there's a movie about him called Cry Freedom. He was murdered, or he was at least found dead, in a uh, police cell in South Africa, and an, an, a pro-apartheid journalist took up the story and changed his view on the whole South African situation. Cry Freedom. Nelson Mandela's story, Long Walk to Freedom. This is a man who was in prison for 27 years for the sake of the anti-apartheid cause. And his book is called Long Walk to Freedom. This is a less celebrated South African. His name is Alan Jacobs. Next to him is a woman called Anita Jacobs. They are my parents-in-law. Alan and Anita Jacobs. 
They are mixed race South Africans, coloured people as they were called. But one day in 1985, after moving to Australia in 1983, Alan Jacobs drove to the Swan River with a bag, a brick and four passports. He put the brick in the bag, he put the passports in the bag, he did that and threw it into the middle of the Swan River. He had just been given Australian citizenship and with it an Australian passport. And he put those South African passports, which had kept him down at his level in every job he'd done, everything he wanted to do to thrive as an equal citizen, not even allowed to vote, and he threw them in the Swan River. He had been freed from something. He'd been freed from a way of living that saw him as a second-class citizen. Now, the apartheid regime was smart because it divided people into strata. And as long as your strata was just above someone else's strata, you should be pretty happy. But not Alan Jacobs. He still can't cope with South Africa winning a cricket match. Let's put it that way. <laughs> never voting, never rising above your certain level. You can imagine when he came to Australia and he walked down the streets of Perth before he ever got the rest of the family here and he applied for jobs and he got given a fantastic job in week one. He went, freedom, freedom. He could smell it in Australia. And he'd been involved in helping black townships in South Africa and all these things, but he thought, no, I want freedom. So he came to Australia. See, freedom from something is also called, another term, a negative liberty. It's from something. It's not to something at this point. It's called a negative liberty. And it drives our imagination both socially and culturally. So many of our movies, so many of our books are about freedom from something. And it's often from a restrictive past. It's the road trip where you find yourself who you truly are. It's the emancipation story where you break free from a restrictive family. It's The Handmaid's Tale, Gilead. How do you break free from that? And our cultural story is this. Your purpose in life is to free yourself from the constraints of others, whether those others be individuals, families or institutions. Anything that restricts you being the most authentic you that you can be is, by definition, slavery... And therefore, wrong. You may not even believe that, but you're going to experience a pile-on if you say otherwise. That is the thought that our culture holds quite strongly. And that's one of the, I would say, as it's called, a defeater belief against Christianity. How can Christianity, which says there is a certain way to live, be anything but restrictive, therefore against freedom, therefore wrong? And Tim Keller says this, Freedom has come to be defined as the absence of any limitations or constraints on us. By this definition, the fewer boundaries we have in our choices and actions, the freer we feel ourselves to be. Even the restraints we place upon ourselves, and we'll talk about more of that in a moment, are seen as expressions of us being truly free, because we only do them if they allow us to do what we want. And you are at the cusp of a world in which you will be given so many choices that you will be able to decide to do what you want. That sums up our societies, or Western society at least, idea of freedom. The freedom from certain things. That's the negative liberty. The from of freedom. That's what we're talking about there. But I want to point you to another freedom. Freedom 4. Anyone remember this famous movie? I base my life on Nemo's teachings, I tell you. One of the, it's actually, this movie, Finding Nemo, is one of the great freedom stories. As I was deconstructing it and reading and thinking about it, I used the word deconstructing, sorry, I did an arts degree in the 80s and I'm still trying to launder it out of myself, you know. But Nemo goes on a search for freedom, doesn't he? He does not want to be constrained. He goes out beyond the, under the, beyond the reef into the deep water. His dad, Marlon, has a deeper psychological bondage, doesn't he? He's afraid. His wife has been killed. He is there to look after Nemo. 
and he needs to be freed from his fearful past. That's half the reason why Nemo takes the liberty to go out beyond, uh, over the drop. And Dory, Dory needs to be freed from this Mobius strip loop of living in the same moment all of the time. Can you imagine never being able to remember anything about your past and how toxic and how binding that would be on you? That's Dory's life. That's the whole frustration of her life. The kicker for me, though, is the tank fish in the dentists. Has everyone seen Finding Nemo? Was everyone born when Finding Nemo came out? I'm getting on. But the tank fish are obsessed with what? Being free from the tank. One main subplot revolves around their attempts to do this. And then when Nemo ends up in the tank, they see that as an opportunity to help him and help themselves. But the movie's last words are fantastic. Now what? Now what? The fish conjure a plan. They get put in bags for the tank to get cleaned. They get into those bags and then they get into the ocean. And as they land in the ocean, they look around, stuck in those plastic bags, with an ocean ahead of them of freedom, and they just say, now what? We hadn't planned for anything beyond the tank. We just needed to get freedom from something. We hadn't figured out freedom for something. There they are, bobbing up and down in the ocean, and they're going, now what? Negative liberty, freedom from, needs to be countered by positive liberty, freedom for, or you will become a tumbleweed the rest of your life, rolling around looking for something. See, my father-in-law, Alan Jacobs, had a freedom from, but he needed a freedom for. The worst thing would be if he'd come to Australia and acted like a second-class citizen who couldn't vote or get a good job. (laughs) That would be the worst thing for him. It changed his life when he moved from South Africa because he had a definite plan of what he was going to use this freedom for, which was to create a different life for his wife and his son and his daughter, who ends up being my wife. I don't know if he quite would have seen that he might have come if he'd seen I was going to be his son-in-law. But anyway, but it changed his family's future, how he lived, how he worked, how he acted. He used freedom from apartheid for something else. And both freedom from and freedom for need to be held in balance. Because that's the only way that freedom can move from beyond freedom as a slogan to an actual story that makes some sort of sense. Here's my observation. Our culture is kicking goals at freedom from Every movie, be true to yourself, follow your heart, whatever. (laughs) It's very uncertain about freedom for, because it's unsure how to give up one freedom for the sake of any other freedom. In other words, it doesn't know what constraint should be in place, because it doesn't have a goal or future for what that freedom might look like. We live in a pro-choice world, and we live in the age of opportunity, that choice becomes an end in itself. I am free to choose. What are you free to choose? I don't know, but the fact that I'm free to choose is the thing. (laughs) That's not working in our culture. You go to your year 12 graduation, and they say, you can be anything, anywhere. And our psychology offices are full of people, young people, especially young people, anxious and depressed, saying, I just want to be someone, somewhere. That is true. One of the largest cohorts of people that my wife sees are post-year 12 students, about a year and a half into university, going, I'm not so sure. (laughs) You are free to be anything you want, anywhere you want to be it. And anxiety and depression are key problems for anyone under the age of 30. Couldn't I just be something, somewhere? It turns out that freedom has to have some sort of boundary or restriction to freedom if it's to have any meaning. 
Freedom for us looks like a kid in a lolly shop looking at a wall of lollies and being told you can choose three. You're free to choose, and you just don't know what to choose. You are. You delay choice because you're... <laughs> That's life. Everyone feels like that. That's why people get married later, have kids later, can't figure out their career later. And are told anyway, but your career could be done by 20 years' time anyway. Welcome to freedom. <laughs> Fortunately, I'll be dead by all that stuff. Laughed. <laughs> Preaching. Tim Keller again. He said, real freedom comes from a, this is the word, strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It is not the absence of constraints, but it is choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. And that's an altogether different thing than just deciding I want to be free or I don't want this to bind me up. Which things do we decide? Now, another example would be, and I'm a runner, and runners always tell you that they're runners, so don't hate on me, but I want to be free in five weeks' time to run a sub-three marathon, right? October the 6th. I want to be freed from the curse of 4 minutes 16 a kilometre and be liberated to 4.15 a kilometre, which will get me under three hours. I am therefore not free to lie in every morning. Right? I give up that freedom on a cold August, September morning to get up and run at 5.15 in the morning in order that I can have that freedom. I trade off freedoms. That's freedom from and freedom for working together. And in the biblical story, that's how freedom works. Israel is freed from slavery, not so they can sit around watching reruns of MacGyver. They're saved from slavery so that they can serve freely the God who saved them. So that they could serve a God who told them you can have a Sabbath rather than a Pharaoh who told them they had to make bricks seven days a week. It's constant in the Bible, because it's a constant in life, that you can't have freedom from without a freedom for. Not for very long anyway, because things will eventually break down. And the story of the Bible is that Israel does that. It takes the freedom from and forgets what they are freed for, and life goes pear-shaped. Things fall in and themselves. Injustice, social disharmony, rampant murder, people who have nothing being mistreated by those who have too much. See, what? that's what we've got to. What do we do with the freedom we've got? The now what question. Now let me show you another picture because I think if you're listening to this you're saying, yeah, but I know what I want out of life. I know what freedom should look like. I've got an idea of how it's meant to map out and the Bible message probably doesn't give it to me. Let me show you this picture. Because there's a slavery in us that we can't even see. There's a slavery we can't see in ourselves. Now, anyone recognise anyone in that picture? James Corden? Yeah? The other guy is a guy called Lionel Sukard, who's uh, originally Israeli, but he's a mentalist. And I watched a few of the videos where 150 of the people in the studio audience all sit down and are told at the end of a session to draw anything they want on a piece of paper and keep it to themselves, just after James Corden has also been told to do the same thing. They are free and independent to draw anything they want on that piece of paper and there are 150 of them from all sorts of walks of life, ages, abilities, gender, whatever you call it. Every one of them drew a star. 150 of them drew the same thing, as did James Corden. (laughs) Through the art of suggestion at a deeply subliminal level, which he explains afterwards, everyone did what Lior Chicard said that they would do. And he suggested it to them without them even thinking about it. 
prove it wasn't a fluke, there's three years of him being on the show with different audiences and different times and different occasions. And that's what he does to them. He's a mentalist. And they go mental, to be honest, <laughs> when they all look at, why did I draw that? I had freedom to draw anything. And we all drew the same thing. You can Google them later. At this point, you might be saying, well, that's everyone else. I carefully curate my life and any hint of restrictions on my freedom, bang. I know where I'm headed and I'm not going to let my individual freedom go. To which I would reply, of course you're going to say that. You're an obedient, well-trained cultural hamster. Because that's what you're told to say by the culture. The culture pushes us in that direction to say that I alone know the freedom that I need. But there's a slavery we can't even see in ourselves. And part of that's from our experiences of life that have infected us internally, the things that we deal with that we can't break free from. And some of those things are external. Tim Keller also tells a story about uh, going up to ask someone to come to church at a door knocking someone's house. And the guy at the door was so angry with him. He said, no, my kids will never go to church. My dad was a rampant religious bigot and I'm going to keep them from that. And Tim Keller said this before he ran away to give him a punch in the nose. Um, it's amazing how your father still dominates your life. You think you are breaking free from him, but every decision you make is dominated by what he thought. Internally, we're not as free as we think we are. And we swim in a culture, the story of the goldfish swimming in the bowl. And Grandpa Goldfish comes past and says, Hey boys, how's the water? And they go, water? What's water? You can't see the water that you're swimming in culturally. You see, I think, I suspect, that we're playing the story of the Western culture to a T. It tells us, you want autonomy. We want autonomy. You're all individuals. We're all individuals. You know? <laughs> I'm not. Who said that? You know? <laughs> There's an idea of liberty being the authentic you, that has been curated to you, that you've been drinking from youth? Do you think you came up with your idea of freedom all by yourself? There's a slavery we can't see in ourselves. And we would only have to end up in the equivalent of, say, someone like Mozambique, or even Mozambique. I've got a friend I Skype every two weeks in Mozambique. Life is very different in Mozambique. Freedom looks very different. The idea of personal autonomy where no one has any say on what I do with my life is abhorrent in a communal culture like Mozambique. You see, we are bound up to doing exactly what the culture has told us we should do. Can you honestly tell me that you make free choices? And I know there's a whole philosophical thing about determinism there, but isn't it a case that we're more like the tank fish bobbing around in the ocean in plastic bags? Not saying that we're robots or that there's no such thing as autonomy. I'm saying let's at least be a little bit humble and say that we're making choices that aren't particularly always free, but they are shaped and curated by the things that are enslaving us, whether those are internal or external. Not fully, but let's not just say that we're completely free. We do make choices and we're responsible for them. That's why we have courts. <laughs> That's why there's the law. But there's a slavery in ourselves still that I don't think we can see. Now Jesus makes that point in John's Gospel, one of the narratives of Jesus' life. To those in his day, religious people who said they were free, they prided themselves on their autonomy. Now Rome was the occupying nation over Jerusalem these religious leaders were. But these religious leaders were still sure of their freedom. And they say to Jesus, we've never been slaves to anyone. The trouble was they were looking around at the Roman authorities and saying, we've still got our temple, we've still got our way of worship, we don't be enslaved even to these people who've occupied our nation. We're holding our own. And Jesus says, oh really? If you sin, he says, if you break God's law, you are a slave to sin. It has bound you. And the proof of this, Jesus says, you're going to kill me by me telling you this. And they said, 
we'll never kill you. And then it says they took up stones to try to kill him. <laughs> Their law said you shall not kill the most religious people in the nation, yet they couldn't help themselves. It says they took up stones to stone him. They thought they were free, but they were slaves to something else. So, given all the caveats that we do make free decisions, we're not just atoms and determinism, it's at least worth asking the question of ourselves. Let's be careful not to be like those religious leaders who thought they were freer than they actually were in the decisions they made. What would Jesus say to you if he sat down with you and he said, I'm free? How long would it take him to show that perhaps you're not as free as you thought you were? Last picture. I call this the fear or perhaps the future of freedom. I had a picture of my father-in-law in the first picture. Here's another picture of my father. Because I want to tell you about a freedom narrative that went a bit pear-shaped. Dad's story growing up is in Northern Ireland, where we grew up as a family. Not exactly South Africa, but it's, it's a trouble spot. So I'm married to a South African. I'm Northern Irish. <laughs> trouble waiting to happen, isn't it? You know? But Dad left Northern Ireland because he felt restricted. We were Protestants in Northern Ireland. It was time, during the time of the Troubles, as they call it, in the 70s, when things were really bad. And my parents just decided we're getting out. They left Northern Ireland and moved to Australia. But Dad was always restless, always looking for the next thing. And he came to Australia looking for freedom. But the problem was he came with himself. <laughs> he came with himself. So we went back to Northern Ireland, partly because my mum went to my dad just said, oh, OK, let's do it. And that bombed as well, and we came back to Australia. And two years later, my dad, after two years of living in a funk back in Australia, because things weren't working out the way he wanted them to, left my mum for another woman, much younger, 17 or 20 years younger than me. The day before I started university. Not a good idea, but nevertheless, that's what he did. Four boys, my mum, he goes off. Didn't see him for a long time. He then left his second wife with two boys because that wasn't working out either. So there's now six boys and two ex-wives, both left the same way within a day out of surprise. About eight years later, he came back to us as a family with his tail between his legs to apologise for all the things that he had done and ended up living by himself our family forgave him, but he never really resolved it with his second family. He said, I know I can be forgiven by God about this, but I can't forgive myself. Can't forgive myself. Totally bound by the things that he thought were going to free him. A couple of years after that, he got Lewy body dementia, which is a very bad form of dementia, which is like Parkinson's and dementia together. And I had to drive him on the day that he had to go and live in a locked ward in a dementia wing. And the fear and horror in his face. He was in a transition room for a while, which meant a shared room, which he couldn't cope with. He got his own room eventually. And I said, we walked into the room. I had all Dad's stuff, which had been reduced to a couple of bags. And I said, at least you got a room to yourself. And then you hear this voice, G'day, mate! I'm pulling the curtains. This guy called, I'm Barry! Oh, crumbs. Big guy. You've got to put your name on everything here, otherwise they'll take it. That's why Barry's, you know, Bowie knife and, you know, from Barry. You know? And Dad's horrified. Eventually got his own room, but every time we go in there, you have to close the door so people can't get out. No freedom. Downhill like that, lost all his bodily functions. Couldn't go to the toilet by himself. <laughs> couldn't eat, couldn't drink, couldn't speak, didn't recognise us. And I sat with him on the night he died, two years ago, as his breath got shallower and shallower and shallower, just moistening his lips with a long cotton bud thing they give you. And I missed his death because I had, we had to move house the next, that day. 
But I came in the next morning to that place, and sure enough, he was dead, lying on the bed. And you go, wow, I've seen the difference between him dying and now him dead. And I conducted his funeral a week later, and we lowered that coffin into the ground. Whatever Dad's search for freedom meant, it ended. (laughs) And his freedoms narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed to the point where there is no freedom as you put that box in the ground and you throw the soil on top of it. I don't care how free people think they can be in this culture. The right to die, the freedom, does not come with the right not to you are going to die. And all the freedoms won in this life will end. They may end like that in a car crash or they may end in bits and pieces like my father's, but they will end because death is the ultimate restriction on freedom. And so much of our frantic search for freedom is based on our subterranean conviction that one day every freedom we've ever enjoyed will be taken away by death. That's why blokes in their 50s run off and leave their spouses and get a sports car and a new wife. Because death is coming and I haven't done enough free stuff. The best art and literature is not about freedom. It's about coming to terms with death. Your death. Our deaths. If someone could be freed from death, that would be a game changer. In the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity says we have a game changer. Our slavery in the Bible isn't simply to death, as if we are free until that last moment. The Bible doesn't say that. It's a slavery to the fear of death to the fear of death. The biggest thing to dull our our fear of death seems to be whiteboards or travel or experiences or whatever it is. We will do anything to anaesthetise ourselves to not death, but the fear of death, because it's coming to get us and all our pretensions about freedom are exposed by death. The Christian message of Jesus, who gave up his freedom to never die, who gave himself over to death for our sakes, is a freedom from the fear of death to a freedom for the joy of life. A constrained, yes, life, just like all lives are constrained. Certain freedoms come with certain constraints. But if this life is all there is, then freedom from is your best shot. (laughs) But if not, freedom for definitely comes into play, I reckon. (laughs) You can restrict certain freedoms in your life for the sake of other greater freedoms. And Jesus' prime example, again, of this is in the context of Roman occupation. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Sorry, what was that word? (laughs) Deny? And me? (laughs) Deny myself. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus wants me to give up freedom now for the sake of getting a greater, greater freedom then. Is that what Jesus is asking? That's exactly what Jesus is asking. Is there another option? Yes. You can take your freedom now. And you can lose a greater freedom then. I think we know that's true, generally. Alan Jacobs' story says it's true. My running story says it's true. My dad's story shows that it needed to be true. My life story needs to say it's true because only that can free me from being enslaved to the fear of death. Because the fear of death is so subterranean that it will push us in so many directions that we can't even imagine. A fear will drive you to all sorts of false freedoms in this life. 
Which freedom will you choose? That's the question in our culture. It isn't a choice between freedom and bondage. It's a choice between something that will lead you to life or something that ultimately, no matter how free you are, will bind you in death. That's the gospel message. That's the message Jesus says. I know it's not popular in the culture, but if it's true, it's worth thinking about. Thanks very much. about death on a uh, tap. Very nice. Uh, thanks for talking. Uh, if you want to have a chat, uh, we're going to have a time for Q&A now, but turn to your mate next to you and chat for about a minute. Uh, is there anything you found intriguing or interesting? Um, and then, yeah, you can fire some questions away about a minute or so. Cool. Thanks, mate. Yeah. Uh, is there any questions? Uh, that's the question. Yeah. Um, oh, I do think that um, does Christianity can Christianity restrict freedom in a bad way? Is that part, is that you know, in one sense? Yeah. Can Christianity get it? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. I would say that that might be a question because I don't know who's Christian or not Christian. Yeah, no, there's, there's probably not a heaps. I can see if it's probably people Yeah. But I mean, people don't know those questions. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, sorry, it could have been dark. <laughs> that's alright. <laughs> nice dress. I thought it was really, it was really interesting, great talk. Like, very thought provoking for sure if you haven't thought about that sort of thing before. No. And I think it's. And why would you? It's funny. No. I mean, <laughs> hardly anyone thinks about that sort of stuff at this age, so. No. It's good, sort of, yeah. But it happens, even to people of this age. No, it's true. Yeah, it's not only uh, seven year olds, though. <laughs> no. Yeah. Alright. Do you want to. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you want. Alright. I hope you came up with some good questions, if you do have any. Uh, fire away. Does anyone have any questions they want to ask of Steve? Something really technical about a French philosopher that I don't understand. <laughs> anyone have any questions? Yes, Moji. In the... Like, like freedom as in, like, do you refer to slavery? So I was wondering yeah. if you meant freedom as in, maybe freedom to, I guess, like, go out and party and drink with friends, or versus freedom as in terms of, like, oppression and... Yeah. Yeah. Look, um, I think freedom... All, I think big issues of freedom are always pictures of small issues of freedom in one sense, because freedom is a good thing. It's written into us that we should, that freedom, you look at slavery and you, you know, with the cultural blinkers off, you have to see that it's how wrong it is, whether that's enslaving one person or enslaving a nation or whatever it's doing. So the story of the Bible has that issue of freedom written into it. And it even starts with, you can have any tree of the garden, right? God gave Adam and Eve a million yeses and one no. I think there's one. Yeah, one no. And when they broke that, what happened was that freedom started to have to be given caveats. You you can't be in the garden, but suddenly you get all these laws in the Old Testament. Think, why are there so many laws in the Old Testament? There's one no and there's a million yeses, and suddenly there's 634 no's, and some of the interpretation on this is a bit, you know, whatever. And it feels like because we didn't know what to do with freedom properly, we've got a fence around us. So I think big issues of freedom, we, I think, get us, we go, freedom smells good when you see it working well. When you see people freed from tyranny or slavery or whatever, you think, that's right, that's a picture of something. And that's the negative liberty aspect, freedom from something. The tricky bit, I think, in our culture is what does freedom for look like? And that's in a context of a 
highly individualistic culture. Uh, a lot of Westerners think that just this is the way it always has been. We're just all about individual liberty. That's not how many cultures worked in the past, and still many don't work that way today. True freedom is found in community, in what other people want, not what I want, or communal living. So there's different nuances of freedom, but I do think that it's interesting around the globe when people are freed from something like slavery, there's a freedom, a bestow moment to it. It's it's because I think it taps into what we're supposed to be, truly free people. The hard bit then goes, what does freedom for look like? Uh, freedom from, we can sort of figure out in individual and corporate levels, but freedom for is, is, is a harder take, I think. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think freedom is such an interesting, deep issue in humanity that it, it mines down from a huge corporate global level down to the individual level in a way that we're not, we can't quite put our finger on, but I think it's God's design. Freedom is God's design. Does anyone have any other questions? Tim, Um You talked, uh, Ian, about giving uh, up some freedoms now, saying that's freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could elaborate yeah. on that. What do I have to give up now to say freedom after? Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't want to step outside the words of Jesus. Absolutely everything. You write a blank check, you give it to Jesus, and you let him fill in the amount, I think. I think that's what... That's the hardest thing to do. You know, you'd never have a... You guys don't use checks. Um, you know what I mean? It's like you, Jesus says you've got to give up your life. But he, he doesn't say it like a stoic. And I've been watching The Good Place. Binge watching it. Anyone watch The Good Place? Yeah? Love it. I, I didn't, couldn't care for it until I started watching the first episode. Now I'm like the expert on it. You know? <laughs> uh, but what's interesting about that is the how bound one of the guys is, the, the hero guy who's on the wall, who was the guy who got closest to understanding heaven, that doing something altruistic, doing something good, had to be divorced from the idea of reward. The Bible never says that. The Bible says that suffer now, restrict your freedom now, glory later, full freedom later. So the way the Bible operates, it offers reward for stopping something now. It's a freedom from and a freedom for. But it delays the for. <laughs> because I think Jesus is saying in that passage, you've got to give up your right to decide what you want to do with your life. Because when he said, you must take up your cross and follow me, we think little chain around our necks. He's walking down the road in Palestine where they've crucified people. That's the ultimate expression of, I cannot do what I want to do. I mean, pinned to a cross. And Jesus is saying there's a trade-off for freedom. There's a great reward in giving up some freedoms now for a greater freedom then. For each of us, that's going to look different because each of us have a little idol of freedom locked away. And you know what it is for you. That cannot be touched. You cannot touch that, God. That is my freedom. And Jesus says, well, really? I could give you a greater freedom, but... If you want to cling to that, it's heavy enough to drown you. <laughs> so I think whatever it is for you, it's saying, no, Jesus can't touch that. That's probably what you probably need to think about giving up <laughs> because that's the thing that's going to drown you. That's the thing that's going to put you into slavery. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, thanks, Steve, for yeah, coming along to talk to us tonight. Steve will be sticking around afterwards. Uh, if you want to have a chat with him, ask any more questions you like. Yeah. Um, but appreciate you coming yeah. along. Thank um, you, clap him. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been great to uh, think with you all tonight on this uh, really important topic of um, freedom and what it means for us. Um, yeah, I think it's really great that we can think deeply about uh, important life issues um, while we're at uni um, and uh, beyond. So I'd encourage you guys to keep thinking deeply about uh, things and um, various issues. Um, the CU is uh, the Christian Union here is, is keen to uh, help you keep exploring Christianity. If saying tonight might have piqued your interest, um, we've got this program called Christianity Explored that runs um, sort of uh, is it six weeks? Six weeks starting next week. They're, they're about forty-five minute sessions. Um, it's a small group of people, sort of open uh, environment that welcomes people from all different backgrounds and. Um, uh, and perspectives, 
Uh, and, we, and we sort of run through Mark's gospel and just um, see what Jesus, uh, who Jesus is and what he has to say. Uh, and so if, if you're keen, if you're interested in, uh, in, in exploring more about Christianity, um, that's awesome. Uh, you can speak to your friends um, that brought you along tonight or uh, Jan, he's over in the corner. So, yep, hand up nice and tall, Jan. There he is. He also said he'd um, shout everyone a drink tonight. This is really kind of you, mate. So uh, go see him for a um, free beer after afters as well, pint as well. So uh, get around that. Um, Yes, so that brings us to the end of the uh, talk part of the night, uh, but we're going to have some live uh, music now, so feel free to stick around. Mark is going to jump up now briefly. Um, feel free to stick around, have a drink, have a, some more food, uh, and enjoy Michael's music, um, if you can. So yeah, jump up, Michael, just quickly. Uh, hey, mate, how you going? Yeah. Good to see you. Cheers, man. Good. Is it on? No. Yeah, cool. Um, just quickly, just so we you know, know the man behind the music, um, I trust you've been playing music for a while. Uh, how did you start playing music? Um, I, I learnt in high school and then I, I crashed my car and had to pay the bills and was kind of really you know, a bit of a smart ass to my parents and was like, I'll just gig and then I kind of had to. Yep. And do you make <laughs> enough money from gigs? Um, yeah. Yeah, just, good. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Um, so... Afterwards, your, your music will be great, great set coming up. Uh, what can we do if, if we want to hear, no, no worries, I've heard you before, it's pretty good. Uh, what can we do if we want to hear more of your music? Like, um, yeah, cool. Uh, I'm on a bunch of social media stuff, so uh, facebook.com forward slash Michael Day Music, uh, soundcloud.com forward slash Michael Day Music, uh, and just to shake it up, instagram.com Mike Day Music, because Michael Day Music is a jazz guitarist in the States. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> <Jerk>. <laughs> Very cool. Well, um, all the best tonight. Uh, and so stick around. Um, yeah, and Mark will take over now. Thanks, guys. Oh, my goodness. What? Oh, no. My, my shoe broke. Your shoe broke? What? Oh no, your shoe broke. I got this fixed as well. Check this out. So I got a guy, a shoemaker, about six months ago to fix my shoe. You can see the other side is um. Oh yeah. That's the original side. You wouldn't think that'd be hard. Oh right, no man. And so I got, I took it to a bootmaker or whatever and fixed it, and it's just come undone. <sighs> like how hard is it? Punches over. Yeah. No worries.